Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. During his lifetime, he'd been just another enslaved man. It's likely we would have never known who he was, except for one fateful day, he slipped on a rock, broke his neck, and drowned. It was this accidental death, call it a turn of fortune, that secured him a permanent place in America's gross history of operating on black bodies for medical experimentation. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Fortune was purchased with his wife and three children by a bone doctor in Waterbury, Connecticut in the 1780s. Like most enslaved people, he lived a life filled with heavy labor and multiple farm injuries. However, it's not his life that made medical history. It's his death. Fortune died during a critical time in medical history. The study of medicine in the late 18th century was in transition from the barbaric medieval practices of purging, bleeding, vomiting, and blistering to theories based on the empirical study of the body itself. Medicine was becoming a professional, reputable science, and this new interest in the empirical study required bodies to dissect and examine. Law prohibited dissection though leading to a shortage in cadavers for students to study. The solution for medical students was grim. They resorted to stealing dead bodies from graves. Grave robbing got so bad that it led to riots. Fortune's home state officially prohibited grave robbing for medical dissection in 1810. But Fortune's death came too early. This black man was denied the peace and sanctity of a permanent resting place. Upon his death in 1798, the doctor who purchased him used his bones to study human anatomy. But that wasn't the end of Fortune's story. It gets worse. Treated as property in life, in death, Fortune's bones became heirlooms for the doctor's family. Centuries after his death, Fortune was denied a proper burial, his bones landing in a medical museum for all to study, his humanity totally forgotten. It wasn't until 1970 that Fortune's bones were finally removed from public viewing, and it still took until 2013, over 200 years after his death, for Fortune to finally receive a proper burial. Fortune was robbed of the choice you and I can make today, to donate our body to science. The roots of medical apartheid in this country run deep. And it's an ongoing struggle that we still face daily. 
In the age of COVID-19, we've witnessed the continuance of this struggle as our people perish at disproportionate rates. This is not by coincidence. It is by design. To illuminate this design even further, we have medical ethicist and award-winning writer Harriet Washington joining us today. She's the author of Medical Apartheid, A Terrible Thing to Waste, and Carte Blanche, The Erosion of Informed Consent in Medical Research. No one else is doing work quite like this, and it's way past time we have this much-needed conversation on medical racism. Harriet, what does Black liberation look like to you? Well, Black liberation to me means realization of one's full potential and dreams unimpeded by the mythology of race. That seems to be a national obsession. How does your work contribute to working towards that? Well, I a lot of my work focuses on ethical critiques of science. And there have been many mythologies promulgated by science that have stood between African-American, people of African descent, and the realization of their potential and dreams. So I've worked very hard and very meticulously to dismantle those barriers. A lot of folks are shocked to learn just how prevalent and how far back the medical experimentation on Black bodies go. So what are some of the earliest examples of this practice It's important to note that the medical abuse and appropriation of the bodies of people of color is something that has paralleled closely other cultural phenomena in this country. It didn't happen in a vacuum. During uh, the earliest periods, partly colonial times, but even a bit later, when enslavement was a law of the land, we also suffered medical enslavement. Later, when racial segregation was dictated by law, we had medical segregation. And today, when in so many spheres of American life and enterprise, we still suffer from disparate treatment, according to race, the same thing governs health care and the access of people of color to American health care. So from the earliest days of the Republic, the advent of the African-Americans to this country in 1619 Until the hospital movement began to standardize medical education and treatment and began to locate medical treatment in clinics and hospitals and other loci, until then, a lot of medical research, a lot of medical treatment was practiced by physicians who did not have the type of training that we usually associate with physicians. Many of them had been apprenticed. Many of them studied maybe a year in a one-room schoolhouse. They weren't highly educated professionals. And these people were actually practiced in a very laissez-faire manner. Their work was not supervised. There wasn't any application of um, scientific rigor to eliminate bias. It was very, very haphazard and dictated not by science, but by a medical mythology that predated medical treatment. And then as things moved into the clinic and hospital, we found that a lot of the biases and racist mythology against people of color began to be embodied in practice, in treatment, and in the literature. It began to be sort of solidified and set in stone. And uh, these places became foci of abuse for African-Americans when they're not being excluded from them for treatment. So that's what happened. That was the origins. And unfortunately, we have not shed a lot of the mythology that dictated African-American abuse early on. We're seeing some of the same abuses materialize today. So... 
Are we able to go any deeper into that mythology? One of the things I've, I've written about is because certainly in high school and typically in college and even in medical education, this history has been systematically excluded from the history of medicine. So many people simply aren't aware of what happened. The American School of Ethnology in, the, say, the 19th century was a group of very prestigious scientists. Some of the world's most revered scientists belonged to this group, and this group of scientists were the people who told the world who African Americans were. Among the things that they promulgated about African-Americans were that we were not really human. Only whites were homo sapiens. African-Americans had their own species designation, Africanus. And the descriptions of the species of men said that the Europeans, homo sapiens, were ruled by intelligence, but descendants of Africa were ruled by caprice. So we were held to be less intelligent. We were held to have profoundly different bodies than white people. Biological dimorphism was the root of all the differences between black people and white people. Genetics was still in the future, but this was the earliest statement of this belief that African-Americans and whites are somehow physically very different. Also, we were held to have childish judgment. We weren't, didn't have the judgment of adults. Uh, we were held to not suffer diseases that killed white people. For example, we could get malaria and yellow fever and not be ill and not die. And basic, most importantly to them, we could still work because all these beliefs supported the enslavement system. We were also held to be you know, immune from certain illnesses. that We didn't feel pain, as whites did, didn't have difficult childbirth, and we also had diseases that nobody else had. These scientists said that African-Americans had pellagra, which they held to be an infectious disease. And they also said that the vesicle vaginal fistula, a horrible complication of childbirth, affected black women more than white women because black women were sexually more active than white women, a sexually irrepressible Jezebels, and also held that black men had sexual urges that they could not control, often compared to rutting animals rather than to human beings. So all these very disparate beliefs affected the way African-Americans were treated in the health system. The most dramatic difference is that all the beliefs supported the enslaved system. So if you had a planter with fields that needed to be worked on summer heat and in malarious climates, you didn't have to worry about using black people to do it because they wouldn't get tired and feel pain like whites did. They were not going to die from yellow fever and malaria like whites might. They were not going to feel the pain of, of injury, and they're not going to suffer from heat illness. They were from Africa, after all, so they were used to working long hours in the hot sun. These beliefs all supported the enslavement system, and they also supported the use of African-Americans in research that would be deemed inhumane to conduct on white people. So that's one very important example. The belief that black people didn't feel pain is really important. You know, they're not only important in terms of the facts that were believed about black people without evidence, but they were also important because of what they conveyed about the character of black people. Whenever you take a group and say they don't feel pain, as others do, you're saying something profound about them, not just the fact they don't feel pain, but you're also saying that they are somehow less human than others. And the reason why Black people were held not to feel pain was that their nervous systems were primitive and disorganized, unlike that of whites. And we still see that today to a degree, right? Absolutely. There are studies done periodically into pain and they consistently show that doctors think that black people don't feel pain the way whites do. 
Now, you won't find this in any medical textbook, and I think that's important. But this is a belief that's held very strongly, and the University of Virginia study conducted in 2016 found that 50% of medical students surveyed believed that Black people did not feel pain the way whites do. Now, the interesting thing is that you won't find it in a textbook. So where are they learning this? They're learning this on the clinical floors. They see how the attendings and their resident chief residents treat Black people. They see that Black people's complaints of pain are dismissed. They see that Black people who ask for pain drugs are dismissed as a drug-seeking drug addicts and potential drug addicts. And so they internalize that, becomes a tacit part of the medical training. It's staggering to think that today in 2020, we have doctors who still believe things promulgated in the 19th century. Hmm. Pain control and belief in pain is something that we're monitoring. We're not monitoring the other beliefs. So my concern is that we're not asking doctors what they think about the intelligence of black people. We're not asking them what they think about whether or not black people are prone to have certain diseases that white people don't have. And if there's a logical basis for that, we're not monitoring those other things. How many other things are doctors believing that causes them to render African-Americans substandard care? How do we get an answer to that? Well, we could conduct studies But frankly, we already know that white doctors view black people differently. We already know that researchers who should adapt scientific rigor in asking their research questions all too often start with the assumption that they're looking at a biological dimorphism when they're often looking at something very different. Very often, they're looking at a biological dimorphism saying that, well, blacks and whites have different bodies. You'll see a lot of research generated about a putative difference in African-American bodies and white bodies. It's exactly what we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's definitely get to COVID. I'm interested before we move up to the present day, let's spend a little more time on the, the history of this. Uh, I'd like to get some more examples of what this experimentation has looked like. I think the most familiar one to our audience may be the Tuskegee experiments, but I'm interested in others that may not be as widely publicized. Well, Tuskegee, it's one of the very few, perhaps only the only one, acknowledged by the government. And so people know about that. And it now is bearing an inappropriate burden. It's very annoying to me. And I'm very concerned about the fact that whenever there's a a dramatic abuse of African-Americans in the research arena, people trot out Tuskegee. It's not always a good parallel. There are often much better, clearer parallels to what's happened than Tuskegee. But that's what people know. So it's an intellectual laziness to invoke it so often. My book, Medical Apartheid, that describes in great detail this research over four centuries, um, has 15 chapters. Each of them addresses a different arena in American medicine. Only one of them deals with Tuskegee. There's no area of American medicine and medical research where African-Americans have not been abused. So everything from reproductive and eugenic initiatives, you know, curtailing reproduction, surgery, Research with children, research with prisoners, radiation research. There's no arena that you can mention where you haven't had African-Americans abused for the good of the medical research system, not for their own therapeutic welfare. People often ask me, which are the worst? And then you can't, you can't say that. They're also horrible in their own mm-hmm. ways. Um, but I do want to point out that genetic research has suffered. It's not just that it's abusive, which is bad enough. It's been profoundly abusive, caused a lot of harm, but it's also promulgated a very erroneous scientific mentality in this country. Even scientists are often confused by the relationship between genetics and race. Race is not a biological reality. Race is a product of racism. 
And Dorothy Roberts' book, Fatal Invention, lays that out very clearly. I highly recommend that book. So the beliefs of the 19th century scientists I mentioned earlier, okay, these were racist beliefs. They weren't supported by any evidence. They were just mythology that had been inculcated for a long time. It ha- same thing happened with genetics. There's an assumption, a lot of assumptions, but one of the assumptions has been that African-Americans are genetically very different from whites. And a lot of differences in healthcare are ascribed to genetics, when in reality, they actually are a factor of disparate treatment. There's also a belief in the mean gene, this belief that there's some genetic anomaly that would cause people to become more violent than others. And when, the ever, when that question is looked at, it's frequently looked at in the context of Black people. They'll look at Black people and try to find out what is it that makes Black people more violent than, than whites. Among the scientific problems of that question is that nobody's demonstrated that. Hmm. It's a, just a myth. But they will look for evidence for it. And the research finding the evidence has been extremely harmful, abusive, and cruel. And it's also served to stigmatize Black people, and in particular Black men, as vectors of violence. I spoke at this conference in Lübeck, Germany, and I talked about the fact that in Baltimore, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, they selected 15,000 boys most of whom had been orphaned and were institutions, 15,000 African-American boys, and they were looking at their genetics, their karyotype, looking at their chromosomes to try to find out if they had a chromosomal anomaly that would predispose them to violence. Now, that, frankly, they went in, I think, with the assumption they were going to find this. So they chose these 15,000 boys, all of whom were in institutions, so their parents were not able to withhold consent from them. They also said that as a control group, they had 500, only 500 white boys. These 500 white boys were not in institutions. They were children of privilege in a private school for the most part. They're comparing these two apples and oranges with an eye to saying we're going to find this genetic anomaly in African-American boys. Well, it turned out they didn't find it. Not only the pain and the uh, stigmatization of all these boys, but also a lot of huge investment of money by the government, but they came up with nothing. They didn't stop, though. That was in early 1970s, all the way up until at least the late 1990s. Money was poured by the federal government into looking for a genetic anomaly in black boys and black men that would explain their supposed higher propensity of violence. Right here in New York City, they selected black boys in Washington Heights and some in Brooklyn. And they took these black boys and they were trying to prove that they had a genetic propensity to violence. And in so doing so, they did horrible things. For example, in order to get their mother's permission, they visited their mothers and told the mothers, we know that your other son is in a juvenile facility, which was true. They'd gone to the trouble of targeting young boys who had an older brother in a juvenile. And if you cooperate with the experiment, things might go better with your older son. That's not only coercion and unethical, that was against the law, but they didn't. And then they also offered these boys who were as young as six, they were very young boys, and by law, they also had to get the boys to say, okay. And they did so by offering them uh, Toys R Us certificates. Six-year-old boys. Six-year-old boys. They then took the boys off all their medication. These are boys who were on medication for things like asthma. And they took them off their medication in order to test the drug they were going to give them in isolation. 
Okay. They did all this. And then in the end, the same thing happened. They found no evidence of what they had been looking for. A mean gene, something that would show that black boys predisposed to violence. This kind of thing that's being done consistently. It's not consigned to the past. And yet there's very little publicity and even worse. These things don't make it into the canon of the history of medicine. It's been very difficult for me to understand and accept, but the reality is if you look at the history of medicine, the experiences of African Americans have been very carefully edited out of it. It's been curated. So people think they're reading about what happened in in medicine, but they're only reading about the things that the curators want them to see. One of the difficulties here is that we think of scientists and we think of doctors, and there's often an understandable assumption that they are going to be objective and that they're going to be guided by the facts. I mean, that's part of the definition of being a scientist, right? Right. Being open to falsifiability and being guided by the facts. But science is practiced by human beings, and human beings sometimes allow their biases and their opinions to warp their perception and warp the research they do and warp their understanding. So the fact that somebody is a scientist doesn't mean that person's objective. It doesn't mean that what that person says is truthful. That's a good place to pause. More in a minute. With so many things pulling on your time, thanks for spending some of it with Black History Year. Whether this is your first or fifth Black History Year episode, I'm guessing you figure out this ain't the Black history you learned in school. And maybe that's why you're here. Or maybe you value media that's based on cultivating self-respect, self-sufficiency, prosperity, and a healthy Black community. Or maybe you just want something good for your brain. Push Black exists because we know there are a lot of folks like you in the world and you deserve something fresh and real. You make this work possible when you support Push Black with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. So how has this shaped the sentiments of the Black community towards the medical industry? That's the wrong question. You know, I'm asked asked that question really frequently. I understand why. But unfortunately, the focus on African-American sensibility, what African-Americans think, how are African-Americans likely to engage in research because of this? Are African-Americans likely to help develop the COVID vaccine or are they going to be, you know, reticent? That's the wrong question. It's not just African-American reluctance to participate. The real problem is the untrustworthiness of our healthcare system. That's what people should be interrogating. If you have a trustworthy healthcare system, people will be eager to participate in it. You don't have to be a scientist to know when something is in your own good. What people are recognizing is what's being asked of them is typically not for their own good, and they're quite logically refusing to participate. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that's unfortunate because, you know, there are times like with the COVID-19 vaccine where we need it. We can't afford to be unvaccinated. We can't afford to be people who are unprotected by the vaccine, not just for reasons of our health, which should be enough, right? We want to stay alive. But then it's also the danger of forming some sort of biological underclass. When you have a group of people who don't have what they're calling immunology passports, then you're going to be subjected to a lot of social and political harm. 
it's going to be very bad to be someone who is unvaccinated, unprotected against COVID-19, not just for your health state, which should be enough, but also because of your stature in society, it's going to be affected. But my stance is don't blame the victim. A lot of this complaints about African-Americans not participating is basically a blame the victim scenario. Mm. You're blaming them for doing something that was not their creation. They didn't create the unfair healthcare system. So how does the system work to increase their trustworthiness? And this is a hard part. What most people, I'm not talking about you, but most people today come to me every day asking this question. What they want to hear is a quick fix solution. Mm. That's what they want. But that's not the answer. This happened over the course of four centuries. You know, we're not going to fix it in a few months. But we can fix it relatively rapidly by interrogating the system. For example, looking at the real causes of vulnerability. Early on, when we were told that African Americans had a higher rate of infection, higher rate of disease, all the scientists were saying, wow, we're shocked to find this. Who could have thought? And I'm thinking, why wouldn't you think this? This is what we see consistently. This is what happened with HIV disease. This is what happened with hepatitis C. This is what happened with Zika. People of color are going to be more profoundly affected, not because their bodies are different, but because they're treated differently. They're, they don't have access to health care. When they do interact with the healthcare system, they're less likely to have their symptoms and complaints believed. And then, so they don't get equal treatment. If you look at any of the risk factors that affect African-Americans, you can see they're closely tied to infection vulnerability. For example, environmental racism. Environmental racism is a key cause of coronavirus susceptibility. Every single effect of environmental racism is a risk factor for coronavirus infection. Heavy metals like lead, arsenic, mercury, they increase vulnerability to infection. The uh, food deserts that people of color often have to live in Nutritional deficiencies increase the risk of infection. Exposure to air pollution causes not only, not only respiratory disease, but also heart and kidney disease. So all these risk factors are caused by environmental racism. So basically, our neglect of African-American health is what caused this problem. And remedying that neglect is going to decrease our vulnerability. What is the experience of Black doctors in all this? In 2008, I and a group of my co-authors wrote an article for JAMA that detailed just a few of the incidents in the medical establishment's mistreatment of Black physicians. It was published in July 2008, and a week later, the AMA issued an apology to the nation's Black physicians. That's good. I mean, apologies to me, I don't see them as a be-all and end-all. To me, what's important is what happens after the apology. But they're important because very often Black people are harmed by the healthcare system, and then it, the harm is never acknowledged. That's a very, very damaging. Because when people are harmed, and then you won't even admit you harmed them, you're certainly not going to get their trust again, right? So in this case, they did admit the harm. And there have been cases where black doctors and white doctors have been working together at things like ending healthcare disparities that have been very, very hopeful, very fruitful. That's good. But in the past, white doctors were very, very active in keeping black doctors out of the profession. And then once black doctors forced their way into the profession in limiting what they could do. The, the very earliest black doctors were apprentices to white doctors, like other doctors were back then. But then when they began entering medical schools, there was a lot of backlash against them. They were frequently castigated as abortionists 
and suppliers of drugs. Of course they were not, but that's how they were characterized. And they often had to defend themselves against that. The earliest doctors who didn't have degrees in this country, the earliest white doctors didn't have MDs, neither did black doctors. It wasn't always a requirement. Training was very different. And the earliest ones, black doctors who had no degrees and were sometimes, in fact, often enslaved, they found that they were caring for whites and for blacks. But when something went wrong and a white patient died, in those circumstances, suspicion might typically fall on a doctor, but rarely went to the point of bringing the doctor to court. But for black doctors, basically it depended on how popular they were. If the whites in the area liked them and trusted them, then they would fare well in court and might survive and not be found guilty. But if they were not trusted and if whites disliked them, they would often be sentenced to death and mm. executed. So, but even so, black people kept studying medicine, kept practicing as doctors. And when they gained entry to medical school, interesting things happened. In fact, the very first doctor to earn an MD in the U.S. had to go to Glasgow, Scotland to do it. Once he got to Glasgow, he studied there. He was a valedictorian of the medical school. Clearly, it was not a matter of him not being qualified. Yeah. He was brilliant, but that was Dr. James McCune Smith. He comes back to New York, and what happens to him? He came back to New York and he worked very valiantly with the anti-slavery movement, issuing a lot of medical reports showing that the beliefs that, of whites that blacks were inferior and criminal were wrong. He applied to be a fellow at the Academy of Medicine here in New York City. They wouldn't act on his application. They tried to get him to withdraw the application. When he wouldn't, they just ignored him. So when I became a fellow at the Academy of Medicine, it's one of the few things I'm happy about bragging about. <laughs> when I became a fellow in 2016, my first act was to insist they admit him posthumously, which they did. Wow. It's a kind of barrier that black doctors were up against their whole careers. And then in the 1950s, doctors began complaining that they were not allowed to join the AMA because you had to first join one of their constituent societies, a lower society, and then joined the AMA. But the Southern societies would not let black doctors in. The AMA said, sorry, you know, we can't do anything about that. We wash our hands. You know, they're independent organizations. We can't stop them from barring you, you know. And the black doctors reacted just like everybody else in the civil rights movement. They began protesting AMA conventions as a racist organization. They began suing the AMA, suing hospitals that wouldn't let them into practice. And eventually, they won. They gained entree into all the AMA chapters. They gained entree into public hospitals. So by their own hard work, they won. And one of the things I like to point out to is I'm thrilled that African-American physicians have been increasing in number. That's wonderful. But I'm not happy if you look at, a, there's a gender divide there. Almost all the advances have been made by women. The peak year for African-American men graduating from medical school was in the 1980s. They still are very poorly represented. You know, again, it's a cultural issue as well, because African-American male physicians were always condemned very harshly. It wasn't factual, purely racial. They were condemned, again, as I said before, as abortionists and drug dealers. African-American men in medical school for a long time were not allowed to learn gynecology with white women. They had to be apprenticed out to a black doctor and deal with black women. They would not allow the um, black doctors in training to touch white gynecology patients. The absence of black men from American medical training is not only unfair to them. When people complain about the dearth of African-Americans in science and medicine, I always want to point out 
it's not only unfair and unethical, it's also stupid because we can't afford to throw away genius. And we are losing a lot of intellectual power by barring Black people from these disciplines. In your opinion, what is it looking like for Black folks in terms of this pandemic and what we can expect as far as how we are treated within the system? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can say that one of the things I worry about is the effect that the pandemic has had on informed consent. Most people assume that in this country, informed consent, which is telling a subject, a potential subject, everything about the research study you propose in terms of, you know, what you plan to do, how you plan to do it, what all their options are, including doing nothing, what the known effects include, what the suspected effects might be, not just medical effects, but lifestyle effects. Will you be unable to drive? Will you be lose your appetite? All the things that someone would need to know to make an intelligent determination, whether they want to participate or not, All these things have been required by law for a long time, and people assume that that's going to happen every time. But what happened is that in 1996, laws were passed that dispense with informed consent. In certain studies in this country, no one has to tell you that you're in research. So I'm concerned about that because under COVID, one of the things that drives this is a sense of medical urgency or military urgency. And so now we have a clear-cut medical urgency. So What's been happening is that you've had hospital institutions that have decided to not ask people permission, for example, DNRs. So they will fail to resuscitate someone who would normally be resuscitated, and they won't ask your permission to sign a DNR or not. No, they're just going to do it to you. Some places, including Newark, have decided not to give CPR to people with COVID-19. So a lot of the things that people would normally have a chance to say yes or no to, they no longer have. And they're invoking the emergent situation of COVID-19 to justify it. Typically, when these protocols are breached, people don't go back. You know, it's called function creep. You might start out with a few exceptions in a very unusual situation, but next thing you know, it's something that's being done routinely. That's my big concern, informed consent. My other concern is that the medical mythologies that have been driving a lot of the disparate treatment of African-Americans are just not being challenged as they should. You know, we have people just routinely make statements about, quote unquote, lower intelligence of black people or a higher propensity for violence in Black people. And they're going unchallenged. Or their statements about genetics being the cause of certain diseases when they're not. They're not being challenged. So we need to have a much more rigor. I know you said that we need to do a better job challenging. I would like to get clear on who you mean is we. Is that more challenging coming from our communities? Or is that in the medical profession, more folks challenging or just all around? There needs to be more challenging of folks who actually want to see the facts get out. Everyone needs to do this. <laughs> Yeah. So for the common everyday person who wants to challenge these myths, is there even a way? I know social media is a big way people get their voice at now, but is there a hotline? They write letters to the CDC. How does it work if a community wanted to effectively challenge? There are a few things I can think of, none ideal, but I think that they're all worth pursuing. Depending on what you're talking about, what issue you're talking about, I think people need to remember that your elective representatives work for you. If something is important to you and it's something that in any wise can be mediated by law, let them know about it. Once in a while, this works. 
The other thing I think it's really important to remember is that social media is good, but let's face it, social media has its limits because very often you end up with different sides kind of screaming at each other and you wonder how much real impact it's going to make at the end of the day. You know, direct political action is better. And the other thing that I think lay people don't think about much, if you read newspapers and magazines, you often see op-eds. And the op-eds are written often by scholars or thinkers in an area, but there's no law saying you have to be a scholar to write an op-ed. All you have to do is be someone who's knowledgeable about a topic. There are topics that, in my opinion, I worked as a social worker a long time ago, and in my opinion, there are topics that people on the ground know a lot better than the social workers and the lawmakers because they live it. It's their lived reality. So... I think it's a good idea for them to consider writing op-eds. If you're not good at writing, there are actual organizations out there will help you do a good job of doing it. If you have an opinion and you have information to back it up, it's worth a try because op-eds, sometimes you'll be lucky and change people's minds, but it's equally valuable to change the conversation. Got it. Thank you. Well, hopefully there's folks out there who can uh, take those steps. We need all the folks from our community who can help out with this to help out. I know we can't alone put an end to it, but as you said, everyone needs to challenge it in order to push towards a different place. One of the things I always try to impress upon medical students when I talk to them is that it's important to realize that one person can make a difference. It can be costly to be the person to speak up, and you're often not going to be encouraged in that. But history is filled with situations where one person has spoken up and ended in outrage. So I hope that anyone listening to me will be inspired by that. Absolutely. All right, Harry Washington, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. All right, all right. So just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. You know, at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. Special thanks to Detroit's Motor City Woman Studio and Andrea Daniel. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Escadar Getahoon, Leslie Taylor Grover, Abney Jones, Aquia Tay, Darren Wallace, and our producer, Sydney Smith. For Limina House, our producers are Jessica Rue France and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the podcast. Black History Year's executive producers are Julian Walker for Push Black and Michael L. Sesser for Lemina House. I'm Jay for Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace. <laughs>